Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. Last time we read Psalm 65, this time is Psalm 68. Jumping a few chapters because in my chronological Bible, Psalm 66 and 67 were elsewhere. So this one is a long one. Just FYI. Here we go. Verse 1. Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Blow them away like smoke. Melt them like wax in a fire. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God. But let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. O God, when you led your people out from Egypt, when you marched through the dry wasteland, the earth trembled and the heavens poured down rain before you, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You sent abundant rain, O God, to refresh the weary land. There your people finally settled, and with a bountiful harvest, O God, you provided for your needy people." The Lord gives the word, and a great army brings the good news. Enemy kings and their armies flee, while the women of Israel divide the plunder. Even those who lived among the sheepfolds found treasures, doves with wings of silver and feathers of gold. The Almighty scattered the enemy kings like a blowing snowstorm on Mount Zalman. The mountains of Bashan are majestic, with many peaks stretching high into the sky. Why you... Look, why do you look with envy, O rugged mountains, at Mount Zion, where God has chosen to live, where the Lord himself will live forever? Surrounded by unnumbered thousands of chariots, the Lord came from Mount Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from the people, even from those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live among us there." Praise the Lord, praise God our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms. Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign Lord rescues us from death. But God will smash the heads of his enemies, crushing the skulls of those who love their guilty ways. The Lord says, I will bring my enemies down from Bashan. I will bring them up from the depths of the sea. You, my people, will wash your feet in their blood, and even your dogs will get their share. Your procession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King as he goes into the sanctuary. Singers are in front, musicians behind. Between them are young women playing tambourines. Praise God, all you people of Israel. Praise the Lord, the source of Israel's life. Look, the little tribe of Benjamin leads the way. Then comes a great throng of rulers from Judah and all the rulers of Zebulun and Naphtali. Summon your might, O God. Display your power, O God, as you have in the past. 
The kings of the earth are bringing tribute to your temple in Jerusalem. Rebuke these enemy nations, these wild animals lurking in the reeds, this herd of bulls among the weaker calves. Make them bring bars of silver in humble tribute. Scatter the nations that delight in war. Let Egypt come with gifts of precious metals. Let Ethiopia bow in submission to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing to the one who rides across the ancient heavens, his mighty voice thundering from the sky. Tell everyone about God's power. His majesty shines down on Israel. His strength is mighty in the heavens. God is awesome in his sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. So now as I dive into the footnotes for this psalm, David is calling people's memory back to the time of Moses. The first verse starts off with, Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. And uh, this is the same as the beginning of um, Numbers uh, 10 in verse 35, as the Israelites followed the Ark of the Covenant. It undoubtedly brought to mind the time when David led a joyous procession and brought the Ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. David probably wrote this sometime later, reflecting on that joyous event. He also references Mount Sinai. In verse 8, the earth trembled and the heavens poured down rain before you, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And one comment here reads, Mount Sinai had a prominent role in Israelite history. It was at Mount Sinai that God met Moses and commissioned him to lead Israel out of Egypt, which is Exodus 3, 1 through 10. It was to Mount Sinai that the nation of Israel returned to receive God's laws, Exodus 19, 1 through 3. And God's presence made the entire mountain tremble, Exodus 19, 18. The sacred mountain was a constant reminder of God's words and promises. Then let's see, verse 15 to 16, then it moves to talking about the mountains of Bashan and Zion. It says, the mountains of Bashan are majestic with many peaks stretching high into the sky. So mountains of Bashan, very, very tall. Verse 16, why do you look with envy of rugged mountains, speaking of the mountains of Bashan, at Mount Zion, where God has chosen to live? where the Lord himself will live forever. And the comment explains this. Bashan, the land northeast of Israel, was the home of mighty mountains, including Mount Hermon, the tallest and most awesome mountain in the region. So the land of Bashan contained the tallest mountain, Mount Hermon. God's choice of Mount Zion, a foothill by comparison for this side of the temple, led the psalm writer to poetically describe the envy of the mountains of Bashan. And so the temple uh, that was eventually built by David's son Solomon, so none of that has even happened yet, um, was built on Mount Zion. And of course, it's almost prophetic as well that David is talking here about the mountains of Bashan being envious of Mount Zion, even though the temple hasn't been built there yet. The very next verse, verse 17, says, Surrounded by 
unnumbered thousands of chariots the Lord came from Mount Sinai, there it is again, into his sanctuary. And this comment reads, the psalm celebrates the final stages of a journey that began at Mount Sinai with the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and finally ended at Mount Zion, the site of the sanctuary, the chosen dwelling place of God among his people. It may describe the moving of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And lastly, jumping to the very end, verse 34 and 35 it ends with, tell everyone about God's power. His majesty shines down on Israel. His strength is mighty in the heavens. God is awesome in his sanctuary. The power of Israel, or the God of Israel, gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Last comment here that I liked. When we consider all God has done for us, we should feel an overwhelming sense of awe as we kneel before the Lord in his sanctuary. Nature surrounds us with countless signs of God's wonderful power. His unlimited power and unspeakable majesty leaves us breathless in his presence. How fortunate we are that God cares for us. A, I think that's awesome that they wrote that. I, I couldn't agree more. I kind of read my mind, right? Uh, God in all of his awe and wonder and power like actually cares for us. <laughs> us little pipsqueaks, right? Um, also, where it says nature surrounds us with the countless signs of God's wonderful power. Mm, was that not the theme last time? Sort of. God's nature speaks of him in awesome ways. Moving over to Proverbs, we are in chapter 17, starting in verse 10. A single rebuke does more for a person of understanding than a hundred lashes on the back of a fool. <laughs> verse 11. I'm, I'm not laughing at the violence, I promise. I'm just, I'm laughing at the, the, anyway, more, more of it is an analogy than anything else. All right, 11. Evil people are eager for rebellion, but they will be severely punished. 12. It is safer to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to confront a fool caught in foolishness. <laughs> Thanks for the imagery. Solomon, appreciate that. It's safer to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to confront a fool caught in his foolishness. I'm sorry. I inserted the his. Could be a her. Could be a she. Okay. Verse 13. If you repay good with evil, evil will never leave your house. Mm. 14. Starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate. So stop before a dispute breaks out. Man, that is so true. Uh, I can remember times where I was caught in an argument that just kept going for the sake of arguing and being right. And by the time it was over, it was not about what it started about. And I'm wondering, what were we arguing about? But I want to keep arguing because now I'm on a roll and I have to win this. <laughs> so dumb. Verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent both are detestable to the Lord. You know, 
one thing I love about that is God is the ultimate judge. He sees everything, he knows everything, and he absolutely loves justice, right? He wants right to be done and justice to be served. And when justice is polluted on earth, that is detestable to him, right? Because he knows what actually happened. He knows who really is guilty and who is really innocent. And when the wrong thing happens, it's nice to know, I guess, that God is bothered by that. I don't know why that's comforting to me. But it is. I mean, it's not like guilty aren't getting away with things and the innocent don't get punished for things they, they, they shouldn't have been punished for. But it makes me happy that God is such a, a, a God of pure justice. 16. It is senseless to pay tuition to educate a fool since he has no heart for learning. <laughs> Sorry, parents who spend a lot of money for your kids to go to college and they don't take it seriously and throw it all down the drain. Verse 17. A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. 18. It's poor judgment to guarantee another person's debt or put up security for a friend. Mm. That's harsh. That's harsh. Basically, when it comes to money, he's saying, don't take on responsibility for someone else's debt. You know, and sometimes you really just want to help somebody out. But if they don't pay it and you get thrown under the bus, you know, now you're going to be in a bind that was 100% preventable. 19. Anyone who loves to quarrel loves sin. Anyone who trusts in high walls invites disaster. All right. I need to reread this one in two pieces. Anyone who loves to quarrel loves sin. Well, <clears throat> see also the moment I just said that sometimes I would argue just for the sake of arguing. Okay, so this is saying that's a love of sin. So it's basically calling me out on that. That's nice. Anyone who trusts in high walls invites disaster. Is that because high walls are just man-made objects and our trust should really be in the Lord that's how I interpret that verse 20 the crooked heart will not prosper the lying tongue tumbles into trouble 21 it is painful to be the parent of a fool. Oh, see also uh, verse 16 about paying for a fool to go get an education. Um, all right, 21. It is painful to be the parent of a fool. There is no joy for the father of a rebel. Mm, gives him some gray hair. Of course, gray hair was a crown of glory we reread last time. In verse 22. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. Oh, oh so true. There's a comment on this one I'll read. Okay, so the verse is a cheerful heart is good medicine, 
but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. They write, to be cheerful is to be ready to greet others with a welcome or a word of encouragement. To have enthusiasm for the task at hand and a positive outlook on the future, such people are as welcome as pain-relieving medicine. And in that, the truth, like, who would you rather be around? Someone who has a positive outlook that can encourage you or someone that is an emotional vampire and zaps all of your emotional energy into their own problems? Verse 23, the wicked take secret bribes to pervert the course of justice and see also the verse we read uh, 15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, both are detestable to the Lord. When the wicked take secret bribes to pervert the course of justice, this is detestable to the Lord. Verse 24, sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth, dreaming and dreaming, not doing or moving. Verse 25, foolish children bring grief to their father and bitterness to the one who gave them birth. <laughs> See also verse 21, it is painful to be the parent of a fool. Verse 26, I, I'm, I'm picking up Solomon might have had some stress over some of his children, his many, many children. Verse 26, it is wrong to punish the godly for being good or to flog leaders for being honest. See also verse 15, that these things are detestable to the Lord. Verse 27, a truly wise person uses few words. A person with understanding is even tempered. Sometimes I feel like this one's for me. A truly wise person uses few words. I recall some people I've known in my life that I always see in my mind as being very well spoken. You know, they're very good about thinking before they speak. And this makes me think of them. And the person with understanding is even tempered. You know, staying calm all the time. It's a nice goal to have. And last verse of chapter 17, verse 28. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Gosh, Solomon has a sense of humor. I love it. And I'll end with the comment on these last two verses about keeping our mouths shut using few words. This proverb highlights several benefits of keeping quiet. One, it is the best policy if you have nothing worthwhile to say. Oh, that's true. Verse two, it allows you the opportunity to listen and learn. Also agreed. Three, it gives you something in common with those who are wiser. Ooh, I like that. Make sure you pause to think and to listen so that when you do speak, you will have something important to say. I'm not very good at that, but I try. Um, 
well, there's times when I'm really good at it, right? When someone's really struggling, it's very easy for me to just sit there and shut up and listen with the intent of understanding. I have no thought about what it is I'm supposed to say next or need to say next or etc. I'm not thinking about what my response is. I'm strictly just listening to them, trying to pick up what they're putting down, right? Um, those times are easy for me. But when it's not about someone's struggle, right? It's not a deep conversation and it's just normal conversation, that's where it gets a little bit harder for me to do, you know, active listening skills and to not read accidentally, you know, change the trajectory of the conversation because I wasn't fully in the moment with them, you know, my thoughts would wander to something else. So working on it. We're now finishing a book, the book of James. Last time we read the first half of chapter five, which was a warning to the rich and on patience, endurance. And we ended with Five verse 12 which says but most of all my brothers and sisters never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned and it ends with this are any of you suffering hardships you should pray are any of you happy you should sing praises are any of you sick you should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then, when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. I like how this one highlights that we should help each other and take care of each other, even in the form of prayer. Right, verse 14 and 15, it refers to the oil. And one comment here says, James is referring to someone who is physically ill. In scripture, oil was both a medicine See the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 30-37, and a symbol of the Spirit of God, as used in Anointing Kings, see 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. Thus, oil can represent both the physical and the spiritual spheres of life. Christians should not separate the physical and the spiritual. Jesus Christ is Lord over both the body and the spirit. And I like one thing my husband says when we've talked about 
spiritual life, right? Which is if, if someone were to ask Jesus, Jesus, how's your spiritual life? He would, his response would be something like, what other life is there? You know, it's all, it's clearly when you read about Jesus, it's all spiritual life to him, right? And somehow we like to compartmentalize, you know, there's work life, there's physical health, there's family, there's spiritual life, but it's really all spiritual. Verse 16 said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So this whole thing about confessing our sins to other people, not just God. I like this one comment on this. Christ has made it possible for us to go directly to God for forgiveness. But confessing our sins to each other still has an important place in the life of the church. One, if we have sinned against an individual, we must ask that person to forgive us. Two, if our sin has affected the church, we must confess it publicly. Three, if we need loving support as we struggle with a sin, we should confess that sin to those who are able to provide that support. I love that because, you know, we each have our own struggle and need support. And sometimes that confession to someone else, a trusted person that we know can be that support person in our lives, uh, provides um, a lifting of the weight that we carry as well as accountability as we try to make progress in that area. Verse four, if we doubt God's, or I'm sorry, not verse four, number four on the list of why confessing to other people has some benefits. If we doubt God's forgiveness after confessing a sin to him, we may wish to confess that sin to a fellow believer for assurance of God's pardon. And I love that too, because I think it's very human to ask God for forgiveness, but then still struggle with our own doubt. And again, having that support from someone else that's able to say, like, no, God really does forgive. He really forgives fully. And there's nobody who can the way he can. I love it. And lastly... In reference to verse 20, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about forgiveness of many sins. I like this one, this comment. The book of James emphasizes faith in action. Right living is the evidence and result of faith. The church must serve with compassion Speak lovingly and truthfully, live in obedience to God's commands, and love one another. The body believers ought to be an example of heaven on earth. Not that everybody who makes up the church is perfect, right? I don't think they're saying that, but they're trying, right? Drawing people to Christ through love for God and each other. If we truly believe God's word, we will live it day by day. God's word is not merely something we read or think about, but something we do. Belief, faith, and trust must have hands and feet ours. And I love it because one thing that has been a phrase that I use a lot is, you know, if, if you really believe 
that Jesus is who he says he is? Like, do you live like that? Do you live like he really is who he says he is? And that made it into a song lyric that I wrote some time ago. Um, because we don't always live our beliefs, right? We believe that exercise is good. We believe that proper diet and nutrition is good for us. But when was the last time we exercised and how often, how much, and what did we actually eat today and yesterday? You know, like we don't always do (laughs) what we believe is right. But when it comes to Jesus, like if he really is the son of God, God really did create not just earth, but the entire universe. And Jesus really did die, come to earth, take human form, live a life and lose it painfully just so that we could be in their existence, their plane of existence. And then we just go about our day like nothing. (laughs) Makes no sense. Anyway, live like you believe Jesus is who he said he is. 